Blog Talk Radio. Radio, a date with destiny for Monday, April 22nd, 2019. I'm your host and author of the book, Destiny Awaits, The Pouring Out of Wisdom for Humanity to Drink, Lisa M. Saunders, coming to you from Owings Mills, Maryland. And this broadcast is being sponsored by Masterminds LLC, inspiring and empowering people to achieve a greater destiny. We are super excited this evening about being with you and to be able to share love and wisdom with the desire to uplift, inspire, motivate, and empower you to live a more peace-filled, joyful, and loving life. To receive and download this podcast, simply go to the iTunes store, click on podcast, and type in A Date with Destiny. You can also receive it via my website, yourdestinyawaits.net, or simply by Googling us, Blog Talk Radio, A Date with Destiny. Also, follow us on Twitter at least 101 that's L-Y-S-E-101. If you would like to become a sponsor or to get more exposure for your literary work or business, you can send a message via my website, info at yourdestinyawaits.net, or via my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash A Date with Destiny 101. Once again, we are excited to be able to share with our listeners information from people of all walks of life that we believe will inspire, motivate, and empower you. As of last Friday, we are happy to have approached our sixth year of broadcasting. Yay! We are really, really looking forward to sharing some great things from some really extraordinary people that we have coming up for the rest of this season, so you're not going to want to miss an episode. Uh, um, Also, on that note, we have a save the date. So, on Monday, May the 6th, our guest is the son of our guest this evening, Loki Mulholland, and he is an award-winning filmmaker, author, and activist. So save that date, May 6th, Monday, May 6th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're not going to want to miss out on that one. So tonight, like I said, we have another amazing show. Our guest this evening is a civil rights icon, freedom writer, Miss Joan Trumpower Mulholland. Joan's freedom writer mugshot has been called one of the most iconic in American history. By the time she was 23 years old, Joan Trumpower Mulholland 
had participated in over 50 sit-ins and demonstrations, including the Freedom Rides, the Jackson Woolworth Sit-In, the March on Washington, the Meredith March, and the Selma to Montgomery March. Her path has crossed with some of the biggest names in the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, Fannie Lou Hamer, John Lewis, Diane Nash, and Julian Bond, just to name a few. Joan is a recipient of the 2015 National Civil Rights Museum Freedom Award, uh, the 2019 International Civil Rights Museum Trailblazer Award, and the 2018 I Am a Man Award, the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated Annual Award of Honor, and the Anti-Defamation League Annual Heroes Against Hate Award. That is a mouthful. That is a mouthful. She has appeared in several books, including Coming of Age in Mississippi, Breach of Peace, We Shall Not Be Moved, and She Stood for Freedom. She has appeared on television and news programs like the CBS Nightly News and award-winning documentaries, including An Ordinary Hero, PBS's Freedom Freedom Riders, Standing on My Sister's Shoulders, and the groundbreaking film Eyes on the Prize. So without further ado, A Date with Destiny would like to welcome Miss Joan Trumpower Mulholland to the show. Hello, Miss Joan. Hello. You make me sound important. Well, I'm I'm just an ordinary old lady in the neighborhood. (laughs) And what an ordinary lady you are at that. How are you this evening? Oh, I'm quite good. And pleased to be talking to you. Well, you sound wonderful. You sound wonderful. And uh, we would just like to first, before we even get started in anything, just thank you for taking your time out this evening to share with us. We really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Okay, so we have, I have a lot of of room to cover here in so little time. Um, And I'm hoping that, I already know right now that I'm going to ask you to come back one day (laughs) because we're not even going to be able to touch the surface of what your life has been, what your journey has been um, up until this point. So what I would like to do is uh, to start, at the beginning, you know, um, many of my listeners may not be familiar with your whole story. I have been promoting you all ever since uh, you said that you would agree to do my show. So I'm hoping that people got a little caught up by watching some of the documentaries that were done and just, you know, going online and doing their own research. Um, your journey is amazing. It's one that, you know, until you walk in someone else's shoes, you just you know, you just, being on the outside looking in, um, all I can say is, wow, you know, um, you you have some mighty big shoes to fill, Miss Joan. Oh, thank you. But the most <laughs> challenge, biggest challenge I ever had was raising five sons. Oh, Let my gosh. <laughs> yes. Okay. I could, yes. Let me give you some applause right there real quick, because mm. I can only imagine... And you know what? It's it's funny you should say that because I tell people, and I didn't raise five sons. I have a, bo- a son and a daughter. Um, and 
you know, that alone was challenging. But five sons, I always tell people that being a mother is the hardest job on the planet. Amen. In my opinion. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Okay. So maybe later on we'll add, you know, we'll talk about how did you do that just by the grace of God, huh? Well, my son said, Loki says that I got over that nonviolence thing when I had kids. <laughs> Boy, take off your belt, hand it to me, and bend over. Because I didn't I know that's right. love tap, but right. um, I intimidated them. Oh, well, good for you. Good for you. I had so, to. Um, I know, girl, I know. I know. And look and look at them now, you know. I've only They're met them all one, doing so good. Far. Yes, ma'am. See? See? You did it, Miss Joan. You did it. So, um, so, so going back to the beginning, and when I say the beginning, um, I want to take you back just a little bit. And I, um, I don't. You've probably told this story a gazillion times, but um, I watched never the, the same film. story twice. There you go. I watched your film, Ordinary Heroes, um, and your story from the beginning when you were a little girl, um, and how you discovered. That actually, that's, uh, that set you on your path. Let's talk about that a little bit, if you could share that with us and, you know, okay. where you were and how that happened. Well, I'm a Southerner, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Virginia, and I went to Sunday school regularly, and we learned all those Bible verses. You had to know them perfect if you wanted another gold star in your Bible. But mm-hmm. they mostly had to do with treating people the way you want to be treated. Loving yes. your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. All that stuff. And when I was 10, my playmates every summer down at Grandma's in Oconee, Georgia, not that fancy resort, mind you, but the old company-owned logging town, we snuck off and walked to the black part of town, the road that went through there, and mm-hmm. people just sort of hid themselves, didn't want to to know anything about those two little white girls coming through. Mm-hmm. And it was creepy, but when I saw the difference in the schools, the school for the black kids and the brand-new brick school, the fanciest building, still the fanciest building for miles around, and that shack with an outhouse and a hand pump for water, and I'll spare the rest of the details, but mm-hmm. this was not fair. This was not treating people the way they should. we wanted to be treated ourselves. I didn't know anything about separate and equal or anything, and it was before Brown versus Board, but I knew mm-hmm. this was wrong. And when I got the chance to do something to make the South, didn't know about the rest of the country, to, but to make the South the best it could be for everybody, I would seize the moment. That was was where I got started, believing what I learned in Sunday school and seeing how the other half lived, so to speak. Right, right. So, and you were 10. What year do you remember around about what year that was? That would have been, say, 51, maybe as late as 52. Okay. And then um, from that point on, so you're a 10 year old little girl who I believe God just touched your heart, like your spirit just woke up at that moment. So now you're a southerner, right? Living in the in the deep south. Still a southerner. Still a southerner, right? My homeboy. Okay, okay, okay. 
And um, here you are, you know, seeing the how the other side lives. And uh, how did that work out with your parents? Well, I, I don't know that I said anything to my parents. Mm-hmm. But when I started getting involved in things when I was sort of college age, Mama was horrified. Mm-hmm. She had grown up in the rural South where the law, the church, and society all supported you know, equality, inequality, mm-hmm. um, separation. This went against everything she had always grown up with. Right. And what could she tell the neighbors and the friends and the family? Oh, it was awful. Mm. Daddy was okay with it. He was from Iowa. They had met in Washington during the New Deal. and um, But he was afraid I would get killed. But he supported mm. the goals. Mm-hmm. So, and that was that the, down, but then, you know, yeah. Go ahead. No, I would say Mama was and I were at strained odds. She would do anything to keep me out of the deep south, mm-hmm. and um, she was in real estate, so that was helpful. But she didn't really begin to show her mellower side until grandchildren got involved. Oh, okay. But, um, I had to remind her about her language every now and again around the grandkids. But she was a good grandmother. Mm-hmm. I don't think she ever really changed her her opinion about what the way society should be. Now, didn't you along? The, now, let me see if the, the timeline, if I got that correct. Were you um, locked away in a mental asylum or something before you started the sit-ins, or was that after? No. Well, I was never locked away in a mental asylum unless you call Parchment State Penitentiary that, and I think oh, well, we well. were not the ones that were <laughs> mental. But okay. I was at Duke University, and when we were, got involved, some of us involved in the sit-ins at the invitation of the black students at North Carolina College mm-hmm. and invited us to join them, and few of us did, mostly those good-looking, you know, graduate school guys. But mm-hmm. the... Um, the dean of women just went ballistic, and she thought we were, you know, mentally, uh, perhaps we were mentally unstable and wanted us to get some counseling. Mm-hmm. But the, um, the professors, said they supported us, and that's what kept us from getting expelled. But, you know, I didn't need that aggravation, and um, I only was at Duke because that's where Mama said I was going to go. Mm-hmm. Nicely segregated, prestige, all that. Um so I finished out the semester and got my credit hours, and then I split the scene. And um, okay. I was out of school for a year. Yeah. Yeah, but, and you so you started out at Duke. So what what was your first sit-in, like your first major sit-in? In Durham, North Carolina. Durham was one of the first cities to have sit-ins right after Greensboro. Okay. And um, I was arrested twice in sit-ins in Durham. Um, and they were pretty big. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was just sort of routine by then. They knew what the drill was. The police knew and the students knew. Um, you just hope being in a cell with other... Of course, the jails were segregated, mm-hmm. um, contrary to the impression you can get from the movie The Green Book, but never mind. Um, right, right. And you were a little concerned that, uh, you know, an everyday white prisoner might take serious offense to you or even be planted there to rough you up or something. But um, nothing 
nothing really bad happened there. And in fact, one of those cases was one of the ones that were consolidated for appeal to the Supreme Court, which ruled in 63 that sitting in was freedom of speech and the police could not come in and make arrests unless the manager closed the store, the demonstrators refused to leave, and then the manager asked the police to come in and get mm-hmm. rid of those demonstrators. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was involved in, you know, an important sit-in, but it didn't seem important at the time. It was just routine. Right, right, right. And so was that was that one of the ones at the Woolworth counter, or did that come after the uh, those two? Oh, the big Woolworth counter one um, in mm-hmm. Jackson. That wasn't until '63. Okay. About a week, about a week after the Supreme Court ruling. Okay. And the, the police could not come in of their own volition. And mm-hmm. so the police had refused to come in in Jackson, and that got to be probably the roughest sit-in of any in the history of the sit-ins, and the most famous photograph. Yeah. Um, with that sugar being dumped on my head, and I like to say, like, I wasn't sweet enough to begin with, <laughs> but um, the police were outside laughing. Wow. Now, our big mistake there was we had finished exams at the college. I was in Tougaloo College. And um, so it was a good time for us to demonstrate, but we didn't realize it was exam week for the local high school just a couple blocks away, and mm-hmm. the kids could leave the school to come up and get lunch. Before the mm. joints, they came to the lunch counter, except the lunch counter was closed, and they were not happy. And being, you know, big bad high school boys, I say that with a chuckle, um, mm-hmm. One would say something ugly, and then the next one would try to outdo them, and one would throw something, dump something on us, and the next one would try to dump something more dramatically, and the beat goes on. Right. Right. And then, of course, like you said, the police could not come in at that time. So you guys sat there, and you took whatever they dished out. Well, the police could not come in and arrest us, but they might mm-hmm. have come in and dispersed the mob, right. if they had right, wanted right, right. to, but they didn't want mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I so believe I heard you. A... Go ahead. Go ahead. Now, it got to be a no, long I... three hours. But... Oh, it was three hours? About three hours. Yeah, close to it. Wow. And, you know, I, I've seen that picture a gazillion times because, you know, you mm-hmm. you you know, you know about the uh, civil rights movement, and you know, blah blah blah. And those, that's what that was one of the pictures that was always shown. And to be talking to you, you're like one of the people in in that photo. How does that make you I'm feel the last now? One. Well, knowing that I'm the last of the three of us still alive, I think it gives an extra responsibility for me to tell people how it was and encourage folks to get out there and do something about the problems we face today. Now, I want to say those, the three of us at the counter, that is also probably the most integrated, racially integrated sit-in that took place. Mm -hmm. Ann Moody, who wrote Coming of Age in Mississippi, is black. I'm white. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the man, John Salter, is actually Native American, a tribal member. Mm -hmm. So you got the three major groups right there um, sitting together. Right. 
And, of course, they couldn't stand the fact that you were sitting there amongst, you know, people of color. Yeah. So do you think that they treated you like, um, I guess, equally, worse, or or what? I may have been a little bit protected because of Southern chivalry, though I was gotcha. called a traitor and seen that way. But the pecking order for getting beatings or roughed up in demonstrations was the white men got it first as traitors, the black men got it next, then the black women, though not near as rough as the black men as a rule, and then the white women got the least physical violence, but um, mm-hmm. if they were shouting names, we all heard them. Right. Right. And I believe that's when you also talked about having your out-of-body experience during that moment. Yeah, I find that's a survival technique, um, and I understand that soldiers in combat have the same thing. It mm-hmm. was like, you know, we thought we were going to die. You know, didn't seem to yeah. be any question about it. But it's like the real me, the essence of me, my soul, whatever, had left the body and was up above like a guardian angel, Mm. letting me know in a way what was going on and sort of protecting me Mm -hmm. a little bit closer to the Almighty. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that took care of it. And furthermore, we're all going to die sometime. Is it going to be trying to cross the street at rush hour? Or is it going to right. be for something we believe in? Right. And um. Right. You know, I listened to like you know, like I said, I was watching the films and just you know doing my research on you. And one of the mm-hmm. questions that I wanted to, wanted to ask, um, just watching it all, is about courage. Um, because I know in that time you were just doing what you felt as though needed to be done. Um, mm-hmm. Did you feel courageous at all, or were you acting oh, on no. fear? I was, mm-hmm. I was just doing what the students were doing. You know, that was the right. happening thing. I went mm-hmm. to Tougaloo College. That was movement, movement central. And, um, no, I didn't feel particularly courageous. I was just doing what this, yeah. what we were called to do. Right, right. And you never even gave it a second thought. Or did you? Heavens no. Yeah. I wasn't even supposed to be part of that sit-in. But mm-hmm. um, I was with another white person from campus, um, one of the dorm mothers. It's what we called spotters, people that were watching what's happening and had some money back in the old days before cell phones, some money to find a payphone and call back to Megger Evers' office. The picket mm-hmm. down the street was sort of a diversionary tactic to let the sit-in kids get in. Well, the... Um, Picket line got arrested. We called back to Medgar's. And then, well, we hadn't seen any squad cars down the street at Woolworth, so we went down to see what was happening. And um, the one, it was three students, all Mississippians, all black, sitting on the stools. And Memphis, the one guy, got pulled off and kicked senseless. And the two girls got pulled mm. off. But, you know, they didn't get it as bad. And so. Memphis was arrested as well as the former cop who beat him up and mm-hmm. um, that left an empty stool so it made sense for me to take that take a seat there. Wow. So I did. Um, wow. I mean this that was brave. and nonviolence. If 
Yeah. It's just following Gandhi. Yeah. You know, like the march to the sea for the salt march. If one falls by the way, either dead or arrested, and cannot continue, somebody else should step up to take their place. Now, that's right. what we were working on. So. Wow. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing because I don't know too many people that would have. Then again, you you never know, like you know. But you in your yeah. mind, you're thinking like, who would have actually, after you seeing these people get beat up, and there's an empty stool, and somebody takes the stool, knowing that they the same thing could happen to them. You know, to me, yeah. well, that's, that's very courageous. Well, also, I think I was beginning to be recognized. Or, you know, know that I was associated with them. And you're much safer sitting at the lunch counter with a friend on either side of you, the counter in front of you, the press on the other side of the counter taking pictures, and the mobs only behind you. If you try to leave the store, you're in the middle of that mob. Gotcha. Right. And so being at the counter was the safest place. Wow. That's amazing. And so let's move on down the timeline, um, taking you now to, let's see, when you were in um, Canton, Mississippi, and the incident when the Ku Klux Klan stopped you when you were with your four fellow activist friends. Right. We had, Canton was known to be notoriously um, violent and um White civil rights workers did not go to Canton by policy. But with time to graduate from college, we there was going to be a mass meeting, you know, a big meeting in the church um, that night, and we decided we would get a car with a driver not, you know, as easily spotted, recognized, and everybody in the car was white, and we would drive to Canton which was, you know, the next town up the road. And we went to the mass meeting, left. They stopped the mass meeting so that people could get home before the curfew went into effect. And so we were heading out and knew we were being followed, and there were no police around. That was creepy. And um, we got off on that sort of no-man's land between the interstate, the new, brand-new interstate and the old road, and got boxed in. Uh, car was following us a truck was waiting I think and the guys came back with crowbars and started beating on the car and got a hold of one of the guys who opened cracked his window a little bit or something and we they hit him pretty hard on the head and we started saying don't hit him he's from India India Mm. and the week no the day before I think the leader of the opposition party in the Indian parliament or legislator, whatever, had been arrested going to a restaurant in support of the sit-in students. And Mm -hmm. he was jailed, and the embassy went ballistic and contacted the U.S. State Department, who contacted the forces that be in Mississippi. And um, when we said he was from India, um, some of the leaders of the mob picked up on it and let us go. Now, oh, wow. the driver was Hamid Kisselbosch, a good Pakistanian. Mm-hmm. Not happy mm-hmm. about being being an Indian, but thank God that night he was. 
Right. And um, so uh, I have thanked Hamid for saving my life because we've learned that they were planning to kill us to stop Freedom Summer from happening. This was just, you know, a couple weeks before Freedom Summer was to start. And they figured, you know, knocking off a few people would stop Freedom Summer. Those white Yankees would get scared and not come down. Uh But um, they didn't kill us. But about three weeks later, they killed three of the Freedom Summer people. And two of them were friends of everybody who was in that car and lived. So because we lived, our friends died. Mm. So I always feel I've got to do a little bit extra for those Mm -hmm. who didn't live to be able to do it. Mm. And you also, you were on one of those buses, right? You took on the Freedom Ride? I was on on the Freedom Ride bus. That was back in 61. Okay. Um, The bus that was burned in Anniston, Alabama, on Mother's Day, regular passenger bus, not special chartered. Um, Mm -hmm. Hank Thomas, the tall, lanky black guy who's in the pictures Mm -hmm. by the bus, he was part of our D.C. sit-in group. So, again, you got to take the place of those who can't continue. So we started coming from D.C. and... Mm -hmm. Just as fast out the door as the Diane Nash's crowd, but, of course, Nashville was a lot closer, and this was pre-interstate, so they got there first and get all the credit, but we were there, too, and three of our guys were down, and I got a call from the church in Montgomery that was surrounded by a mob, and they had marshals out, and tear gas was coming in the windows that were broken by Mm. stone throwing, and people, King was speaking, everybody who was in the church was trapped. And so each family unit could send one person to make like a two-minute phone call because there were two landlines into the church. Mm-hmm. And I got a call in the middle of the night from one of our three, Paul Dietrich. He knew I had a phone right by the bed in my efficiency apartment in D.C. Mm-hmm. wasn't like calling to the dormitory and having to find the person. Mm-hmm. And he just said, Joan, this is Paul. We're trapped in the church in Montgomery. I can't talk, just send more writers. Mm. And so we started seriously recruiting Mm -hmm. um, in D.C., and I was with a group that went on June 6th. Most memorable person on that was my buddy for the rest of his life, Stokely Carmichael, a.k.a. Kwame Torre. And mm-hmm. um, I like to say I, I brought Stokely to Mississippi. Mm-hmm. We flew to New Orleans, and then we took the Illinois Central, headed to Chicago, and got off in Jackson, and quickly arrested because we all sat down in the waiting room together. And the jail was getting so full, particularly the white women's cell. I don't know what it was like for the guys, but the white women, we were down to less than three square feet of floor space for a prisoner, mm-hmm. people sleeping under the bunks even, and in the wow. dripping shower stall. So they had to do something with us, so they sent us up to Parchman Penitentiary, took the prisoners on death row, and moved them elsewhere in the prison, and put us on the death row cells, trying to oh intimidate us. Mm-hmm. But hey, I'm a southerner, I knew their game. Right. So right. we all eat yeah, I mean- together, you know. 
Yeah, and after all, you were the woman that was going to give birth to five boys and raise five boys. So, yeah, I think this was really preparing you for that, huh? <laughs> I, I reckon it did, yeah. And my sons have been carrying it forward and, yeah. and each in his own way. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So yeah. the times, they I, are changing. We just don't want them to change back, which exactly. I think is a possible danger today. yeah. But now we see the issues so much more broadly. I mean, back then we saw everything in black and white terms. So there were Asian Americans and Hispanics involved with the, right. with the student movement. But it was black and white, basically, just like the, the TV. Mm-hmm. But now we see discrimination based on religion, national origin, um, gender identification. Yeah you know, skin tone, all sorts of ways of seeing it, but it all boils down to respecting people and treating them the way we want to be treated. It's the same bottom line. Absolutely. Just not loving our neighbor as ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, the golden rule, that's, you know, that's one that I definitely live by. Um, When did you start doing the diary uh, and and hiding the diary in the hem of your skirt. That Talk was, about that for a minute. That was in the Hines County Jail. Um, we could get paper. It's on rag paper, so it's um, you can crinkle it all up and it doesn't rip all over the place. So I started keeping a diary of what was happening every day, um, mm. what we had to eat, new prisoners that came in, threats that might have been made to us, anything like that. Real tiny handwriting, and we'd crinkle it up. And I back then, you wore skirts, maybe three yards in them, around them or more, and um, you you had to have a big hem, you know, at least three inches, or you were you were cheap if you just had hems like today. Mm-hmm. So I had ruffles over the hem area, and we opened up part of the hem and stuck in that diary. We figured that would, in a good shakedown, that would be safe. And everybody in the cell knew why we were doing this. So if something happened, we had a record of what had been going on. Right. Now, that was just in Hines County. And then we were taken up to Parchman, where we were given those black and white striped denim skirts and had to hand over our clothes. But it was still there when we got the clothes back. Mm -hmm. And I still got it at home. Wow. I used to Did you use, ever write it? use it in Julian. Pardon? No, no I would be speaking in Julian Bond's classroom sometimes. Oh. I would pull out a page and crinkle it up and oh he he was horrified that I would still crinkle up that paper. Oh. Um but that was Julian. <laughs> yeah. I've met him a couple of times. So tell me too about the um okay, so this is I thought this was really interesting. Um Talk about the 16th Street Baptist Church and those four girls well, at that church. Mm-hmm. Well, now, three of them were buried together. And so a van of a VW bus um, with a a driver who was not a student took her van over to the funeral of three of the girls. And we stopped first at the 16th Street Baptist Church. The um, funeral was being held at another church, and there were still shards of glass and bullet mm-hmm. casings and things, you know, in, in the gutter and the grass, and we were picking up mm-hmm. that. Mine is now at the um, 
New African American Museum in mm-hmm. Washington. And then we went up up to um, where the funeral was, but only people who were associated with the families and the, the church that had been bombed were allowed in. The rest of us were just, the street was packed, utterly packed with mourners. And they had loudspeakers trained out there. and So we could hear what was going on. And up on the roof of the surrounding buildings, I think it was National Guard, but whatever, um, uniformed guys with rifles pointing at us. And um, I think that was the saddest day mm. of any of it. Now, when we were leaving, uh, the VW bus got stopped when we were leaving Birmingham. And we were being sort of followed by the husband, who was a photographer, freelance, but, you know, stuff for Life magazine and all, mm-hmm. um, Matt Heron. And he was following in his own car till we got out of town. Well, we got stopped by the police and just sort of went on a bit. And Matt came up, camera in hand, and um, asked, well, what's the problem? Why aren't you out there looking for the the bombers? Well, we we thought that's why we stopped them. That we thought they were the bombers. And Matt said, "No, you need to go look." And you wouldn't want to see a picture of this in Life magazine, would you? So they let us go. But clearly, it was not a good idea. And we didn't. I didn't. We didn't let on that we recognized Matt. Um, thought we'd best get back to the Gatson Motel rather than try to get out of Birmingham. And they were. Every room was taken. But Dr. Mm. King's party had two rooms and gave up one. So I like to say I spent the night in Andrew Young's bed. (laughs) (laughs) But he was probably on the floor in the other room. But I I think that's a good lie. Spent the night in Uh, Andrew Young's bed, yeah. Yeah, that's a good lie. That's better than the other other one. Like he was in another room. (laughs) Yeah. I like so that. I all like of that. King's folks moved into one room and gave us the other one when they got the story. Uh-huh. And the next day we made it back to Tougaloo. But, and did you go to Howard University or no? You didn't go to Howard No, University. I didn't go to Howard. But when I left Duke, the students who were doing the sit-ins in Durham, the North Carolina College, now mm-hmm. university, students said, well, we haven't heard anything from those students at Howard since this Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was formed in Raleigh on spring break. So if you're mm-hmm. going up there, go, go up to Howard and find out what's happening. And if they're not doing anything, encourage them, help them, and, and write us what's, what's going on. Because, you know, no Internet back then, and even making a phone call was a big deal long distance. So right. I went up to Howard and, like a lost puppy wandering around and asking if folks knew anybody involved in civil rights stuff. And it turned out there was a meeting planned. I went to it. And they were planning to have a sit-in in Arlington. Well, when they found out that I had been arrested in two sit-ins in North Carolina and I was from Arlington, they welcomed me into their group. And so we sat in in, in Arlington. Mm-hmm. And it took wow. care of that pretty quick. And then we, yeah. after that, we went out to Glen Echo, and I bought the tickets. Being white, I could go in and buy the tickets. 
you had to have a ticket for each ride and come out and hand them over to the Howard students who mm-hmm. could get arrested, uh, you know, ticket in hand on the merry-go-round. Right. Wow. And, and then take it all summer. Mhm. Oh, oh, so, so all that summer. Okay. And um, didn't you also say that you came to Baltimore a couple of times, right? Well, I, the DC Morgan? group called NAG and the um, Baltimore group called SIG, CI Civic Interest Group, did some things jointly, and I was up in Baltimore. And I think it was with Morgan State students um, mm-hmm. at a sit-in. Um, I got arrested up there once. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, I my parents it, did but, too. You know, it happens. Yeah. Pardon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was saying my parents did too. So um, I was wondering. I said, wouldn't it be something if you know you all were arrested at the same time? <laughs> I that mean, would be a that hoot. just blows my yeah. That just blows my mind. Um, and I was also going to ask you about Cell 14. Tell us about Cell 14. Well, Cell 14 was, the, it turns out, though we didn't know at the time, was the last one before the death chamber. Um, I've seen the cell where Nelson Mandela was held for years. So he was, you know, out during the day doing breaking rocks and things. And this mm-hmm. cell was a little bit smaller. And generally there were just two people in it. But there could be three or four people um, with the mattresses sort of stuffed under the bunks and Mm -hmm. pulled out at night. But um, in reality, I mean, they were trying to frighten us. The food was better than in Hines County. It was cleaner and newer. So, you know, what's not to like except that it's in the middle of nowhere and they could do what they wanted. But. And basically, we got out about twice a week for a shower. And the lawyer came up from Jackson once a week. And um, anybody who wanted to make bail or something, he, you know, took care of that. But you had to get down to Jackson. They had to move you down to Jackson to either bail or pay the rest of your fine. And then a men of the cloth could come during about a two-hour window once a week um, to pray with the prisoners. And Rabbi Nussbaum would come up from Jackson faithfully every week. I'm pretty sure the only reason he wasn't killed was because the Klan had given word to leave the rabbi alone. Same car, same route, same time, every week, all summer. And the wardens would call out, anybody wants to pray with the rabbi, call out your cell number. So I always called out mine. I figured a man of the cloth was, you know, next step to God. So, mm-hmm. um, And he was really good at sneaking in news. He would say, oh, did you all hear about, you know, what's happening in Berlin? They're putting up a wall or something like that. And the wardens mm-hmm. would call out, you can't tell them about that. So he'd say, oh, well, then can I tell them that, you know, such and such a team be <laughs> such and such a team in baseball? No, you can't tell him that. His other trick was to start praying in Hebrew and get going good. And then about the time he figured the jailers had sort of zoned out, he would Mm -hmm. sneak in a sentence or two of news and then switch back to Hebrew. Hebrew. Never breaking cadence, but he would go back and forth between praying in Hebrew and putting in news in English. He was good. Oh, my. 
Yeah. A true man and, of courage. Yeah. Well, all of you were. I mean, there's just no other word for it. You were fighting. You were fighting for freedom. You were fighting for justice. Um, and and you know, so how looking at today versus yesterday? Um, what is your opinion about uh, just the way things are now? And I heard you say earlier about, of course, we don't want to go back. But do you actually think that we could? Well, they say the past is prologue, and those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. So we got to remember what happened. My generation got rid of legal segregation, but Mm -hmm. it did not get rid of the underlying racism. Right. And that's what the younger folks have got to take on, racism. Mm-hmm. In all its forms, mm-hmm. and um, we have not to call names. So I believe we have racists in high political office, mm-hmm. and we got to watch out for them mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. let them get away with anything. Yeah, I um, yeah, I think that there are more people though that are on the side of justice than there are those who are not. I don't know. I hope so. But different people understand justice differently. Yeah, that's true, too. Yeah, that's a good point. So what is your message for the young people of today? Youngins, you got to identify the problems, pick the one that really speaks to you the most, get together with friends who feel the same way and get out there and change the world. At least change your part of the world. And you never know how far that change will spread. I was in South Africa less than a year and a half, just over a year ago, and visiting in a classroom of fifth graders. And we all sang We Shall Overcome Together. Mm. Our anthem of our civil rights movement had become one of the anthems of the anti-apartheid movement. Mm. So you just don't know. Yeah, you just don't know. Yeah, that's pretty deep. Um, I know that you all went back later on and visited the, the, the jail cell. Um, yes, I saw that. And how was that? Can you explain how you felt? Well, sort of a little nervous or uncertain going in. Mm -hmm. Um, But I knew I wanted to see it, but you didn't know what ghost it would stir up inside of you. But once we got there and seeing it and reminiscing, my lands, they could hardly get us out of there. I remember the yeah. group leaders yelling, the buses have got to leave. Come on. <laughs> but uh-huh. we, 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 we were just reminiscing up one side and down the other. It was it was really good to go back. And we were given any of such stuff, a good welcome. Okay. Well, did any of this stuff ever give you any nightmares or PTSD? or, I mean, because I can't even I still imagine going through any of it. No, no, wow. no problem. And when I see old, you know, folks that I was sitting in with, um, that I was freedom riding with, 
mm-hmm. you know, marching with. When we get together, it's like old home week. Oh wow! And um, we 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 don't get together that often, a lot of us. But when mm-hmm. we do, it's wonderful. May not have seen you in twenty years, thirty right. years. But if I see right. you, and once we identify each other, it's like, oh yeah, hey, um, yeah, and big hugs and. You know, we Southerners, we hug and give a little peck on the yeah. cheek and stuff. And yeah. So, um, but it's Now, it's aren't good. you friends with John Lewis as well? Yeah, he gives real good hugs. <laughs> but, you know, I don't see him very often, you know. Uh-huh. I might go a year or two without seeing him, and then I might see him twice and mm-hmm. in, in six months. But, yeah, I would call John a friend. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, and he's still fighting the good fight too. Yep, I think all just about all of us are now. A few people were sort of psychologically destroyed by the movement, yeah. but fortunately, I wasn't one of them. And um, so we we got to call it what it is and keep going. Yeah, yeah, and so you continue to go around the world and tell your story. Well, mostly around the eastern half of the United States. But, yeah, anybody that wants okay. to buy me a plane ticket or a train ticket and put me up and feed me, I'll go. Mm-hmm. Okay. Run my mouth again, yeah. <laughs> tell it like it is. Well, you have a, an amazing story to tell. I mean, it's a big part of our culture. It's a big party of, uh, a part of a, this history in, in the United States. Um, and I personally just want to thank you for your contribution, um, you know, for just being you and, and following what you believe was the right thing to do. Well, thank you. And young folks, you got to carry it forward. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Um, I wanted to ask you one more, one more quick question, and then I promise I'm going to let you go. Um, okay. So, in in the next, say, let's say the next year, okay, we have a big election coming up, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I really don't usually like to talk politics, whatever, but sometimes you can't help it. So, how do you see this turning out? I just want to get your opinion. Well, the last national election I think turned out pretty good you know for the congress people and senate and all we got a lot of women and we got some Muslims and mm-hmm. more liberals in I think that was a step in the right direction and I am hopeful we'll continue to move in that direction yeah or at least not fall back yeah did you ever think about running for office heavens no <laughs> that's not my thing Right. Well, I think we should elect you. We should just put your name in the hat with everybody else's and see if we can't get you to um, run for president of the United States. Oh, you you have a good <laughs> sense of humor. <laughs> I'm too old for that. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you could really teach this country, you know, a lot, uh, Miss Jones. Um, just. Um, wow, your story is just amazing. That's all I can keep saying. And for those of well, you who are listening, go ahead, go ahead. No, hopefully, you know, people will hear me and it will have an influence yes. on what the, how they vote and what they do up on the hill. Yes. 
Absolutely. I hope they do, too. Well, you just keep on telling your story, and, and um, I believe people are going to sit up and take notice. As a matter of fact, if I can find a way uh, to bring you here to Baltimore to speak, I'm going to do that. So I'm going to keep my eyes and ears open as well. Um, Thank you. And I want, yeah, and I want those that are listening in, please, if you don't have uh, Prime, Amazon Prime, because that's, that's where I believe the documentaries are, you must get it, and so that you can look at uh, look at the uh, documentary "Ordinary Hero." I call you Shiro. Um, if you go to JTM Foundation, JTMFoundation.org, you can learn about the foundation. My son set up, put my name on it without asking permission, but um, <laughs> he does have a, a shopping opportunity for. His DVDs and books and things. Oh, there you, you go. Can, okay. Very good. There you go. Say that one more time. JTM, no, the JTM Foundation. Okay. There you go. Like so, Miss Jones. Well, you know, he's coming on the show next month, so I'm looking forward to talking with him. Um, and then later on, you know, I'm just going to keep in touch with you. I'm going to keep in touch okay. with you because, like I said, yeah, I'm just going to, even if it's just a call just to say hi and just to chat, um, if you don't mind. <laughs> I don't mind, and I'd like to meet you face-to-face. Well, we're yeah, going to make that happen. be good. Yeah, and you're a Delta, and I'm not a Delta, but where did you, um, you're a Delta, so what school did you, um, where did you do your line? What school was that? Uh, Tougaloo College in Tougaloo, Oh, Tougaloo, Okay. Okay. Okay, okay, because I told a lot of Deltas, I have a lot of Deltas who are friends, and I'm like, look, one of your sisters is going to be on the show, so you guys need to tune in. Yeah, and those AKA folks, hey, we're, it's all good. We're all sisters. There you go. And in, you in go. our own way. In our own way, yes, ma'am. Well, Miss Jones, thank you so much again um, for taking your time out. We really appreciate you, and um, we're going to chat again very soon. Okay. And thanks a lot, and carry on. Bye-bye. Okay. Okay, sweetie. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Yes. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. That was Miss Joan Trump-Power-Mahalan, ladies and gentlemen. Um, What an amazing woman, and she's done a lot of amazing things. So we're down at that part of the show where I want to leave you with this. Dr. Martin Luther King once said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And another quote by another great man who once walked this earth, Jesus said, a new command I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Love is the answer. Real love, agape love. And agape means unconditional. I believe and will leave this realm believing that love conquers. I believe that love trumps hate. If there ever was a key to unlock the doors of racial bias, hatred towards our fellow man, it's a whole lot of love and a great amount of understanding and the willingness to learn about others who may look different than you. Tolerant, patient, And kindness can go a very long way if you just let it. 
I have found that there are many people who really want to learn about other people outside of their own race. And I say to those people, good for you, good for you. Because I happen to also know that when the student is really ready, the teacher always appears. So I will leave you with one more quote from one of the greatest songs that were ever written. Imagine there's no country. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I am a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. So that concludes our show for this evening, um, everyone. It was an awesome, awesome show. I got to talk to Miss Joan. Um, you all got to hear from Miss Joan. Um, I want to thank everyone for tuning in with us. Shout out to my family who are always loving and supporting me and also to my friends and colleagues in all of my social networking sites. Once again, a big thank you to Miss Joan for taking the time to share a big part of your journey and your wisdom with us. We are eternally grateful for you. Also, don't forget to stop by my website, yourdestinyawaits.net, to get some extra motivation and inspiration and leave a message to let us know you stopped by. And like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash a date with destiny 101. And follow us on Twitter at least 101. That's L-Y-S-C 101. So make sure you come back and tune in next Monday at 630 Eastern Standard Time. And always remember, folks, that real power comes from knowledge because knowledge is power. And when we know better, we do better. So your mission, if you choose to accept it, is take the necessary time to do a true self-evaluation Seek God and learn how to love yourself first, because after all, you owe it to yourself to know yourself. And once again, I'm Lisa M. Saunders, and thank you for tuning in to Blog Talk Radio's A Date with Destiny. Peace and abundant blessings, everyone. <laughs>